And praise God. Thank you. It's a beautiful song to lead us into the sermon. Uh, children just missed a junior church at this time. Children may make their way to junior church at this time. And we're going to be going to Genesis chapter 6 uh, this morning. So Genesis chapter 6, uh, you can follow Miss Melissa right to junior church. Children, not adults. Adults, you have to stay for the sermon. Uh, Genesis chapter 6. You know, we've been on this sermon series talking about foundations and how Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are significant, foundational to our faith, foundational to the Bible, foundational to the rest of the scriptures. We can't, we can't strip the scriptures of these chapters, allegorizing them or saying they're just myth and not think that it's going to affect the rest of the Bible. So we're on Genesis chapter 6 today, getting into the, the, the flood narrative. And by way of introduction... There's a well-known book titled, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Someone wrote the following. Let me suggest everything I need to know I learned from Noah. Number one, don't miss the boat. <laughs> Number two, we are all in the same boat. Number three, plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. Number four, stay fit. When you're 600 years old, someone may ask you to do something big. And stay fit, especially if you're 600 years old. Number five, don't listen to critics. Just do the job that needs to be done. Number six, build your future on high ground. Number seven, for safety's sake, travel in pairs. Number eight, speed isn't always an advantage. The snails were on board with the cheetahs. Number nine, when you're stressed, float a while. Number 10, remember the ark was built by amateurs. The Titanic was built by professionals. <laughs> Number 10, no, 11, no matter, what, no matter the storm, when you are with God, there's always a rainbow waiting. Trust in the Lord. You know, my theme today is the world is growing increasingly corrupt. Yet Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. As we looked at Genesis 5 last week, as we begin Genesis 6, we see that people are living a long time. They've got a long time to build up sin in their lives. I think life in general was easy pre-flood. I think it was a different world. And so during that time, they had easier life, a long life, and they could think up new ways to sin. And it is growing increasingly corrupt. But Noah was different. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. As we look at this passage, oftentimes we put on our secular eyes and our secular thinking. And we end up trying to be the judge of God. We end up filling in details that are not supplied. What the scriptures tell us is the world was very corrupt. The world was very, very, very corrupt. So corrupt. And we're just beginning. We're going to spend about three weeks, I think, on the flood chapters because it's chapter six, seven, and eight. The world was so corrupt that God decided it was best to preserve a remnant, which was Noah's family, and kill off the rest. And many times we judge God. We're the ones who sin, we're the ones who violate God's righteous standards. We're the one who, who, ones who violate God's holy, perfect standard. And we turn around and we're kind of like Adam in Genesis 3. Remember what Adam said? The woman you gave me, 
Adam blamed God and his wife. And we've been blaming our spouses ever since, right? And I don't know if we blame God too, but we definitely blame our spouses. And our children blame their siblings. It's an everyday occurrence in my house. Not Megan and I blaming each other. The kids blaming each other. But oftentimes we blame God. It was corrupt. I don't know about you, but I think the world is growing increasingly corrupt again. But ultimately, from a biblical worldview, it's creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Everything was created good. We see that in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Creation fell. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. We are redeemed. We see that in the Gospels. But we're not restored yet. It's the already but not yet. We are redeemed, but we are not in the new heaven and new earth yet. So when we see sin around us and we see people condoning sin and people calling uh, a good evil and evil good, and we see all that stuff going on and we say, what's going on in the world? Do we have an answer? Yes, we have an answer. It's in Genesis 3. We live in a fallen world. We, see in a dep- we live in a depraved world. And we see people getting sickness or illness or viruses or infection or parasites or, or whatever. And we see all these other things, mental illness included. We see all these things going on. And they say, what is wrong with the world? Do we have an answer? Yes, we have an answer. The simple answer is Genesis 3. We live in a fallen world. We are redeemed in Christ. And Jesus still chooses to heal on certain occasions. And Jesus helps us in this life. We live with Jesus. We live united with Jesus. We live filled with the Holy Spirit. But we're not restored yet. We're not in the new heaven and new earth yet. We are in a fallen world, a depraved world. And the further we get from the Judeo-Christian worldview, the, the, the further we open the door to secularism, the more we see the fallen, depraved world. I was listening to Breakpoint on Wednesday. They release a Breakpoint commentary. You can hear Breakpoint on Moody Radio, Family Radio, other Christian radio stations. You can also listen on podcast. And they have on Wednesday, Ask the Colson Center. It's a longer Breakpoint commentary. And they answer questions. And this last week, they talked about things like, you know, um, new movies and the worldview they're trying to bring about, especially like Turning Red, I think it's called. Um, I watched it last Friday with our kids. We played Worldview Pop. Um, In other words, I heard this from one of you, actually. Uh, Kids, we're going to watch this movie. I want you to pull out any different worldviews that you see. Any worldview that you notice that is not the Christian worldview or even a Christian worldview, let's talk about it. Um, That's like the worst Disney movie. I do not recommend it. Anyways, um, and can't, what's that? No one's talking about Bruno. That movie's okay. Okay, that movie's okay. But, so I'm not insulting all Disney. Anyways, you know, we see, so they're talking about different worldviews on this Breakpoint commentary, this Cold Center thing. And they said, everybody go look up the parable of the madman. It's by Frederick Nietzsche. Parable of the madman, written in 1882. That's when Nietzsche said, God is dead. And we're seeing that play out. I first heard of this quote by Nietzsche, God is dead and we have killed him. I first heard about that way back in college. It was a long time ago for me, maybe not for you, but a long time ago for me. And I first heard about it then, but never read the context. Nietzsche writes, have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then. He provoked much laughter. 
Notice, as many of those who did not believe in God, they were standing around just then, and he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? Asked one. Did he, did he lose his way like a child? Asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage, immigrated? Thus they yelled and they laughed as this madman said, I seek God, I seek God. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers, but how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there, is there still any up or down? When a society kills off God and kills off the biblical worldview that comes from God, is there an up, is there a down, is there a right, is there a wrong? It's kind of what he goes on to write, even though I think he was an atheist. And if you read the rest, it seems like he's saying a society can kill off God, but it takes time to see the effects of it. And we've seen the effects of it in our culture, in our society. I believe we're in this kind of great experiment of what happens we do not have a worldview of right and wrong. As Jeremiah says in the Old Testament, the people no longer know how to blush. So I get these forwarded emails and some of them I respond to, some of them I don't. And one was just an old guy talking about how bad the world's going and Generally, they're blaming the millennials. That's what seems to happen. And so I'm a senior millennial, okay? Senior millennial. So I blame the younger millennials or Gen Z. I don't know. We, all, we always do that. You can go back. I found quotes from the Puritan days where they're blaming the next generation. I found quotes in the 1930s where they're blaming the, 19, the kids in the 1930s who ended up storming the beaches in Normandy. So we're always blaming the next generation. But in this one particular one, I thought I would respond to it. And I said... Why are we <laughs> blaming the next generation? Because, of course, it was the millennials who gave us Hugh Hefner, right? He was a millennial. And all these other, you know, pornographic hustler and all these pornographic magazines and all these other bad things, free love, shared marriage, all these other things come from the millennials, right? No, they come from depravity. They come from living in a fallen world. And the further we get from the Judeo-Christian worldview, the worse it gets. Along those lines, I would also add... They were not going to reach people with the gospel if all we are doing is criticizing them. You want to reach your children, your grandchildren with the gospel? Stop criticizing their generation. Try building more bridges and less roadblocks. We don't get anywhere being critical. All we do is have anxiety attacks. We're in a culture addicted to 24-hour news, and we wonder why anxiety is on the rise. You know what? This book called The Bible has great, great, great good news. You can read Revelation 21 and 22 and see the end. You can read Isaiah 65 and 66 in chapter 60 and Isaiah 9 about the Messiah and the Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and all these other great passages. But no, we'd rather watch 24-hour news. The world is growing increasingly corrupt in Genesis 6, yet Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. I do intend to talk about this passage today by way of a long introduction. 
Remember that in Genesis 5.32, uh, we, we, we left Noah, and Noah's 500 years old, and he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we saw in Genesis 5.28-29, it read, Lamech, that's Noah's father, Lamech lived 182 years, and he became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord had cursed. So in the naming of Noah, we see Lamech, his father, is making a statement. Even even in his name, he's making a statement. We want rest. We want a Messiah. We want a deliverer. They noticed that the world was getting corrupt, and they noticed that God had already prophesied, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. God had prophesied that he's going to send a Messiah. He's going to send a Savior. And so they were awaiting the Savior, and they thought in the naming of Noah, maybe this is the guy. Maybe Noah's going to be the Savior. Maybe Noah's going to be the Redeemer. Now, he wasn't the ultimate Savior. He wasn't the ultimate Messiah. He wasn't the ultimate Redeemer. But Noah was a type. Meaning, eventually, it's kind of a foreshadowing that eventually, in the New Testament, eventually, one of Noah's descendants would be the Messiah, would be Jesus. But what we see in the name of Noah is they were hungry for a savior. They were eager. I should use the word eager, not hungry. They weren't cannibals. They were eager for a savior. They were awaiting for a savior. And as I shared last week, we have never lived in a world without a savior because a savior had come. Even for the oldest of you, by the time you were born, the Savior had already come, died and for our sins and rose again. We've always lived in a, in a world with the Savior. Are we so thankful and so worshipful and so grateful that God has sent the Savior and we know him? And as I shared last week, and I want to share again because I just want to keep on pounding this truth. There are other people around us who don't know the Savior and we need to be sharing about the gospel. And it starts with prayer. We need to make sure that our prayer list includes our family and friends that don't know the Savior. And we are praying, God, open their eyes, and God, use me. A lot of times we probably rather say, no, God, use that other person to share the gospel. Because I don't want to step out of my comfort zone. I don't, want to, I don't want to step out of my comfort zone. I don't really like talking about that. You're not, to, not supposed to talk about religion or politics. But angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents, and so should we. And if angels rejoice, don't we want to make heaven rejoice? Don't we want to be used by God to share the gospel with other people? Now, I'm convinced that most of the American church doesn't. That's not part of my sermon days. Extra credit. I'll move on soon. But do we care? Because I think we'd rather focus on the negative, how bad the world's going, rather than the positive that God wants to save that world. God wants to save those people. The real problem is not politics. The real problem is, is that people need to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's the real problem. And that's the ultimate correction, too. That when people come to know, truly come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, Jesus changes their worldview. Jesus gives them truth. Jesus gives them answers. Jesus gives them hope. Jesus gives them the Holy Spirit. That's the real answer. So we see right here that the people at the end of Genesis 5 were waiting for a Savior. They needed a Savior. They knew they needed a Savior. And with the naming of Noah, we see that. So now that brings us to Genesis 6, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read them. When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters are born to them. This, ooh, this is interesting. Ancient aliens come out now. The sons of God, so that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. When man began to multiply in the face of the land, people are multiplying. They're multiplying. They're, the earth is getting populated. People are living old, but they don't have a savior. They're living long in depravity, in sin, in this fallen world. They're living incredibly long. 
In Genesis chapter 5, each time it says that they had other sons and daughters, and each time it says that they died, they died, they died, they died. Living a long time, thinking of sin. And it says that sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. This is one of the most hotly debated verses in the Bible. That's why I mentioned ancient aliens. If you watch it, you'll see them talk about this in Ezekiel chapter 1. In Wright Pat Air Force Base. That comes up every time. I bring up Wright Pat because I'm from that area. Cheryl used to work there. <laughs> the sons of God, so the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. We're just going to skip over that and move on. No, I'm just kidding. It says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. God in this passage is the Hebrew word Elohim, Elohim. And it does not necessarily refer to the Lord. Here it is clear that it does not refer to the Lord. It's generic. So who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of man? There's three possible answers to this that I've heard. Number one, the sons of God are fallen angels. The sons of God, which are fallen angels, which would be demons, saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took whomever they chose. And so you have demons marrying with human women and creating a very, very fallen world. Number two answer for this is royalty or despos. In other words, sometimes royalty, like Pharaoh's royalty, would be called gods. So this is saying the, the sons of the royalty married the daughters of men and created this depravity. The third, which is what I favor, is that the sons of God equals the godly line of Seth, and the daughters of men equals the ungodly line of Cain. This is a few that I favor. So it is, in Genesis chapter 5, we saw the descendants of Seth. Seth was, you know, God's, uh, Seth was Adam and Eve's better child, so to speak. He didn't murder his brother. That makes him a little bit better of a child anyways. So we see the descendants of Seth marry the daughters of men. The daughters of men would be Cain's lineage. Cain's descendants, which we see in Genesis chapter 4. So we see Cain's descendants, which are very, very, very corrupt, marry uh, Seth's descendants, which are better. That's why they're called sons of God. And when they intermarry, they create an unequally yoked marriage. And that means now everybody is corrupt. Before it was Cain's descendants corrupt. Seth's descendants are okay. But when they intermarry, now everybody's corrupt. Notice how it says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful. They took wives for themselves. By the way, this is a parallel with Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. In Genesis 3, 6, um, Eve took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she saw that it was beautiful. And so she took. We see that as a parallel. So basically, the sons of God are doing something that is not good. They're marrying the, the depraved daughters of men. They're unequally yoked marriages, which, by the way, there's a New Testament um, instruction about that, which we'll come back to. 2 Corinthians 6.14 talks about Christians not marrying non-Christians. You know, it is true that sometimes in the Psalms, angels are called gods. You can see Psalm number 8, verse 5. But that is a general word, Elohim, a generic word for God. And, and, and Jesus did say that angels cannot marry or be given in marriage. And so it's believed that they really cannot procreate. That's Matthew twenty-two thirty. So it seems that holding a view that, that this is about demons having sexual intercourse with human women mixes in ancient Middle East myths 
as well as ancient Greek mythology with scripture. Now, there are very godly people, very educated teachers that disagree with me on this. So I'll just go ahead and say that. But I believe it's based off context. Chapters were not there in the original Old and New Testament. So Genesis chapter 4 flows smoothly to Genesis chapter 5, flows smoothly to Genesis chapter 6. In other words, the genealogy of, of, of Cain's descendants in 4 flows smoothly to Genesis 5, the descendants of Cain, of, of Seth, right to here. So contextually, I think that makes the most sense. They saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, or it could be literally good, meaning they were good as wives. They take them. Now verse 3. Then the Lord said, my spirit, this is God speaking, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. So it seems that right here, God is saying people are living way too long. For now on, they're only going to live 120 years old. And if you look at it, it doesn't happen right after the flood. But by the very end of the books that Moses authored, God inspired Moses to write, at the very end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies at 120 years old. So it seems like it's a gradual thing that started right there. And let's move on. Verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Much has been said about that word Nephilim. And, and, and people start to think the sons of God were the daughters of men and they were demonic relations with human women and that created Nephilim and they think Nephilim were giants. That's not true. If you look up the Hebrew word for Nephilim, it just means fallen ones. This means fallen ones. It created a more depraved culture. And let me just say right now, in the church, we see it too. When, 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 when Christians marry non-Christians, it is an unequally yoked marriage. And more often than not, it brings down the Christian. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. The Lord is seeing. Now, in reality, God already knows. When it says the Lord saw, this is ascribing to God human attributes, which is to say this is anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphic language. That just means to ascribe to God human attributes. God is omnipresent. He's outside of time. God already knows what's going on. It's just, it's just talking of God like a human. He's seeing things, and he's, and he's grieved over this. Humans are wicked, every intent of the thoughts of his heart continually. This is a very sad verse. This is sad. It says constantly wicked. They're living hundreds of years and thinking up new ways to sin. Many times we end up judging God for the flood, but why don't we realize how much this likely grieved God? How much people might have been stepping in saying, God, when are you going to fix this? When are you going to correct things? Much like in Revelation chapter 6, verses uh, 6 and 7, we see saints who were martyred during the tribulation period. They were martyred for their faith during the tribulation period. And they're talking to God saying, how long, O Lord? How long until you bring judgment, until you make things right? God was grieved over what's going on right now. God was hurt by the utter depravity, which probably included child sacrifice, temple prostitution, um, and many, many, many other depraved things. Verses 6 and 7. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. 
man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. The Lord is grieved. Again, my initial response to this passage is that it's anthropomorphic language. God is perfect. God cannot have regrets like we would. We've all had regrets, right? Like we do something and we're like, oh, I shouldn't have done it that way. You know, we all have those types of regrets. God doesn't make mistakes. If God did, then he wouldn't be perfect, but God is perfect. So this is likely anthropomorphic language. Again, it's ascribing to God human attributes. Though I do have another thought on this. God does not have emotions like we have emotions. There is a doctrine called the impassibility of God. Impassibility of God. Impassible means not able to experience passions. Not able to experience passions. It is a controversial uh, doctrine. It's controversial because in Scripture, we see that God does have passions. God does have passions. The Holy Spirit is God's spirit. And in Ephesians 4.30, it says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean, the impassibility of God? God can never be the victim of emotions. God has passions, but God is not the victim of emotions. We can be taken by surprise, right? We can be taken by surprise in anger and fear and anxiety and worry and sadness. And in those cases, oftentimes we're not making objective decisions, We're just getting mad and flying off the handle and getting upset because we're taken by surprise and anger. That doesn't happen with God. God is not the victim of emotions. Tears can sneak up on us, but not on God. God God does not get knocked around by emotions. God is not at the beck and call of evil, provoking him to anger or grief. So, you know, in one case, I think this is anthropomorphic language. God had regretted And this grieved him. But I like what John Piper shares in his book, Providence. He says, I conclude, therefore, that Genesis 6, 6 does not call God's foreknowledge into question, but shows the complexity of God's emotional life. The complexity of God's emotional life that is far above our ability to question or comprehend. God's emotional life is so complex, far above our ability to comprehend. Even in our experience, there are times when we look back on difficult decisions we made and feel both sorrow at making them and yet approve of making them, right? We can look back on difficult decisions and we can say, I'm sorry that I had to make it, but we approve of making it. And that could be what's going on in God's emotions right here. Remember, God is omnipresent. This means that he's present everywhere and outside of time. He knows all things. He knows the future. He could not regret like we do. Moving on. Verse 7 is about the flood. Again, God is sorry that he created humans. God is going to bring judgment. And I want to reiterate, quit judging God. We are no different than Adam. Judging God. Secondly, I want to say it seems that things were very corrupt. Don't fill in the gaps that you do not know. We do not know, we do not have a clue how bad things were and we start judging God. Thirdly, and don't forget this, I think there's grace right here. I think there's grace right here. There's grace in the midst of judgment. God would have been totally just to kill off all humanity. They violated God's standard. God is holy, God is righteous, God is perfect, God is pure. And every sin is an abomination against God. Every sin is high treason against God Almighty. God would have been totally just to just say, I'm done. 
But he didn't. He preserved a remnant through Noah's family. He knew someday he's going to send a Savior, Jesus the Messiah. And the Messiah is going to save us from all of our sins, past, present, and future. And we're going to have redemption and we're going to have eternal life in him. We're going to have fullness of life in him and so much more. There is grace right here. There's grace. By the way, I believe that in the midst of the flood, in the midst of those who were judged, children went straight to heaven. There could have been a lot of people who died in the flood who this was an act of God's grace. He was saving them from the perversion of the people. He was saving those children from growing up and being child sacrifices or temple prostitutes, you know, and all that other stuff. Children were rescued. This is God's grace as well as judgment. Noah found favor, Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is key to the rest of the narrative. God noticed Noah. Noah was not perfect, but it seems that his patterns of life were following God. So I want to make some applications and summaries. It seems that the godly line of Seth married the ungodly line of Cain, causing unequally yoked marriages that have resulted in a corrupt world. May this be a reminder against being unequally yoked. As Christians, we must not be unequally yoked in marriage. This means we must not have Christians marrying non-Christians. But also, I think this can apply to business practices and other things. When you have a Christian worldview mixed with a non-Christian worldview in business, it can be very, uh, it can be very destructive as well. May that be a reminder. The Lord is grieved by our sin. May we also pray that we are also grieved over our sin. Does it grieve us? Does sin grieve us? In verse 5, Genesis 6, 5, we see that the people were into evil continually. May we guard our heart. May we guard ourselves against getting into constant evil. May we, may we live out Galatians 5, 20, 20, 22 and 23. The fruit of spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. May we live trying to gain victory over sin, living with Jesus. This is a lesson on the depravity of men. This is a lesson on how bad we can get. Don't blame God. We have the sin problem. Don't be like Adam who blamed God and his wife when he sinned. Don't blame your spouse and don't blame God, okay? And may we find favor in the eyes of the Lord. May we find favor in the eyes of the Lord. We see a culture, a world right now, right, that has killed off God. And they're increasingly trying to kill off God. But we haven't. If you're here and you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you know the Lord. You are united with Jesus. You know the answer to the greatest questions about life. You have a union with Christ. And we are called to be a light to the world. As we go, I pray that we would challenge ourselves, pray that we can be a light in a very dark, dark world. Many Christians have done it in the past, and we can do it in the future. And through that, God can redeem, save many, many people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this passage of Scripture, though it's in a way very, very sad. I thank you for the grace. I thank you for the grace of preserving Noah and his family. And through Noah and his family, uh, a few thousand years later, probably 4,000 or so years later, sending our Savior, Jesus. 
Lord God, we celebrate that. Lord God, I pray that we live in a relationship with you and we let our light shine to other people, spreading the gospel everywhere we go because Lord God, we know we are your witnesses for good or for bad. Or should I say we are either your witnesses being a positive testimony of the gospel or either we are a negative witness of the church. Don't let us be a negative witness. May we walk with you and have God's space, spiritual conversations everywhere we go. Use us for your glory and your purposes and be exalted and glorified as we worship you in this closing song. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You're able to stand with us. We're going to sing the first verse of living for Jesus.